is Camilla and you're listening to The Cat's Whisker, a time machine for all those who love rock and roll and want to know everything about it. People, stories and the music that changed the world. In a few words, it doesn't matter whether you've lived through those years or just like me, you've always wondered what it was like. I have loads of stories to tell and great music to play. So let's roll! Hello everybody, how are you? I hope you're okay and ready for this new episode of The Cat's Whisker. So, I want to paint you a picture. It's 1957. You're on your way to the music shop to buy one of the latest rock and roll releases. It's a record by a new band from the United States. And you don't know that yet, but the four people on the cover of that album will shape the lineups of future rock and roll acts. Like the pieces of a perfect puzzle, music will now mostly be made by two guitars, a bass guitar and drums. Oh yeah, anyway, that was That'll Be The Day by Buddy Holly and the Crickets, who some think, as we were saying, should be considered the first band to ever feature. The standard lineup made of two guitars, rhythm and lead, bass and drums. Even when I was a kid and I fantasized about being in a rock and roll band, some things were clear to me. First thing, I had to find other three people. And that was the first obstacle, to be honest, because I would have literally had to force the kids to be in my band since they were all definitely more into the Backstreet Boys than the Beatles. And second of all, I had to get myself some instruments. Unlike my mom, that, bless her, still to this day probably doesn't know the difference between an electric guitar and a bass guitar. I mean, they look the same to me, being her strongest argument. I don't know why I made my mom sound like she's from the south of the United States. She's Italian. Anyway, I was aware that, especially when starting out, it's safe to get yourself something cheap or to use what you already have. I taught myself how to play the guitar on a massive Spanish guitar that didn't really work well with my tiny hands. And then when I was 12 I managed to get a very cheap replica of a Fender Stratocaster. It was black and white and I loved it. When it broke a couple of years later, I forced an ex-boyfriend to sell me his old Ibanez Joe. It was an electric guitar and I just wanted to play. Anything would have worked for me. I would have played a left-handed guitar upside down if that was my only option. That's how much I wanted a guitar. Similar things happened when I started to play the bass. I chose the best I could find for a good price, not knowing whether I would have liked it or not. And now I want another 53. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Even if it might seem obvious, it took me a bit to realize that not all guitars are the same. And it doesn't matter how much you love playing and how good you are. After a bit, you will want to sound like the music you love. Little did I know back then, that all the instruments that I kept dreaming of had a very interesting story. And while we talk about the shaping up of rock and roll bands, let's talk about the instruments they were playing. Because if today most instruments are mass produced and decent gear is available at acceptable prices, it wasn't really the same in the past. Well, and let's not forget that part of the instruments that rock and roll was using were the fruit of new and exciting technological development. Right before rock and roll, many genres such as big band music or jazz, where many instruments play together, made amplification a necessity for guitar. 
So, to talk about electric instruments, we should probably consider the story of PA systems first. Needless to say, PA, which stands for Public Address, includes, just like its name suggests, loudspeakers, but also, and that's more interesting for us, amplifiers, microphones, and all the related electric equipment. Although everyone, even in ancient Greece, knew that putting a horn-shaped item in front of the mouth creates sound projection, it took a while for the first microphone to be created. But not as long as you might think. You won't believe this, but the first attempts at a microphone actually started in the 1600s. Carrying sound around was an inventor's Robert Hooke's mind when he created Lover's Telephone. Basically, what we did as kids, attaching a string to a cup, was the first ever microphone. The wire is able to propagate the sound vibration and retransmit them into the other cup. But none of them obviously was electrical. Different people then, when the telephone was invented, tried several ways to transmit sound through a medium. It wasn't until the end of the 1800s that the first attempt at a modern microphone was made. In 1875, David Edwards Hughes invents the carbon microphone. And just like many great inventions, it happened by using very common objects. He put together toy boxes, wires, sealing wax, and granulated carbon, hence the name. The basic principle is, if you take a granulated carbon and cover it with a metallic material, once the sound waves are going to hit it, the metal will vibrate exerting a varying pressure onto the carbon that will decrease its resistance and create current. I hope I got this right. If I haven't, I told you I wasn't going to be professional, so you've been warned. But it was quite an easy way to produce a microphone. And actually, there are plenty of tutorials on YouTube, so even if, just like me, you don't really understand how it works, you can actually make a carbon microphone yourself. This was probably the first time a microphone was invented not only to communicate, but to increase, electrically, the voice volume. So, this way, the sound wave is transformed into an electric signal. And what happens next in PA? The sound goes through an amplifier that will make the signal louder and ready to be broadcasted by loudspeakers. By the beginning of the 1900s, many experiments were conducted to increase volumes. In 1898, Oliver Lodge created the first loudspeaker driven by a moving coil that used a flared horn to amplify the sound. In 1904, John Ambrose Fleming patented the Fleming valve that, with a little help from the Audion, probably the first ever amplifier invented by Lee De Forest in 1906, led to valve amps that are still in use today. Between 1911 and 1915, Edwin Jensen and Peter Pridham, two American engineers, tried to see what would happen when you connect a microphone and a loudspeaker to a 12-volt battery. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this was the first time in the history of the universe that a beloved sound was heard. I'm talking about the sound that will horrify any audience and make musicians and sound engineers sweat anxiously. Feedback. They must have thought, what the hell is this? Make it stop! And that's actually what we still think to this day. And for those who don't know it, what is feedback essentially? An electric instrument produces sound in form of a signal. And when amplified, the sound gets louder and goes out through the speakers. If that signal keeps bouncing between what is creating the sound, for example a microphone, 
and the speakers, it will make a horrible high-pitched sound. Feedback. Jumping ahead of time for a moment, many musicians actually use feedback in their favor. The first ever track to feature feedback on record is I Feel Fine by The Beatles. But not many people know that a couple of months later, another band decides to make artistical use of feedback. The song is Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, and the band is The Who. After their experiments, Jensen and Pridham were able to create the Magnavox, the first loudspeaker used to address massive crowds. Experiments went on and on for decades to make speakers more reliable and powerful. It's not a mystery that even during the early 60s, when the Beatles were performing live, no one could hear a fucking thing in big venues. So as far as we're concerned, rock and roll definitely helped with the shaping up of PA systems. But even during the late 60s, there was still a lot of work to do. Rock and roll contributed to the development of many, many fields. And my favorite is definitely the musical instruments one. Oh, I wonder why. Probably because there is less physics involved. And as we were saying earlier, amplification started when nobody could hear the instruments. The 20s made it pretty clear. Something needed to change. They had already tried changing the classical guitar design a little, making louder top guitars. One of the first to do that being Orville Gibson. Sounds familiar? And then steel strings were added at the end of the 19th century. Then someone thought electricity might be a good idea to increase volume. I mean, it's pretty obvious for us now, but back then, absolutely mind-blowing. Something that could intercept the sound and then turn it into an electric signal already existed, the telephone. So, the first thing people tried to do was put telephone mouthpiece pickups inside banjos, violins or guitars. Or the other thing they would try to do is putting carbon microphones on guitar bridges. But again, just like my dad when someone speaks on the phone to him, nothing was loud enough. Probably the first guitars to be amplified were the Hawaiian lap steel guitars. Just like the name suggests, they were meant to be played horizontally with a steel bar while plucking the strings. Their sound became quite successful in the early half of the last century. Everything changed when George Beauchamp decided to add a pickup to a lap steel guitar. But first of all, what is a pickup? I personally just knew that it was that thingy bolted underneath the strings when you strum the guitar. But here we go again with science. Oh, I thought we were done. A pickup is a coil of wire wrapped around a magnet. It is also a transducer that takes mechanical vibration produced by musical instruments and turns them into an electric signal. Beauchamp adjusted the pickup underneath the strings of what will then be considered the very first commercially viable electric guitar. It was 1932 and this new guitar made of cast aluminium was manufactured by engineer Adolf Rickenbacker. Sounds familiar again? It was nicknamed the frying pan for its round shape in the pickup area. I mean, Google it, it's the perfect nickname. Just one little problem, or maybe two. The industry wanted a guitar that could be full scale and not small like the frying pan. 
and that could be played while standing using a strap. Introducing a pickup to a classical guitar wasn't really viable. The sound hole was too big and it would create feedback. New guitars will now feature a different opening in the form of F-shaped holes on the side. Between the first of their kind, the Electro Spanish, produced by Rickenbacker in the mid-30s. The Ken Roberts model in particular featured the first hand-operated vibrato, or vibrola, or tremolo arm, or whammy bar, or with a different mechanism, Bixby. Anyway, this tool, which is a bar, usually on the guitar's bridge, that changes pitch temporarily, will massively expand and develop and become a stable part of the electric guitar's design. The most successful electric Spanish guitar, though, was yet to come. It was 1936 and Gibson produces the ES-150. 150, 150 as it costs $150. Today, it would probably be called ES-3000. What's interesting about it is the pickup placement, very close to the neck. It made it less trebly and perfect for jazz. That's why one of the first people to endorse this guitar, and electric guitars in general, was Charlie Christian, a jazz musician who, with a few others, is credited as being the first electric guitar player in history. It was revolutionary, but still there were some issues. Guess what? Everybody all together now! Feedback! Since the guitar body was still hollow, the vibrations were still resonating too much. Also, not all the strings were sounding loud enough, so the design once again needed to change. And that's when the semi-hollow and solid body guitars come along. And that's my favorite part. A man named, you might have heard of him, Lester William Paulfus, aka Les Paul, in the 40s thought that people would probably give him more tips if they were able to hear him better. Well, there's no better motivation than that. So Les Paul decided that he was going to revolutionize the world of guitar. Spoiler alert, he did it. But maybe not everybody knows that it took him a very long time to be actually taken into consideration. It was 1940 when he designs the log, a 4x4 piece of lumber with a bridge, strings, neck and pickups. To make it look a bit more appealing, he cut an Epiphone guitar in two and attached to the sides of his log the two parts of the guitar. It sounded better and the design was made of two hollow parts and a solid body in the middle, making it less sensitive to feedback and more able to sustain the sound. But still, the design was rejected by Gibson because it looked like a, and now I quote, broomstick with pickups. I mean, it didn't look great. The lock itself, since it has no vibrating soundboard, is considered to be the first solid body guitar. But I'm here to tell you that it probably wasn't. A nearly forgotten musician and inventor from Iowa named Orbra Wallace Appleton actually invented a complete solid body guitar in 1941 that resembles 
a lot. What will then be the famous Gibson Les Paul model? So this guy was making a Les Paul even before a Les Paul was making a Les Paul. He presented the app, that's the name he gave to his prototype, to Gibson. And they told him they couldn't see someone playing a solid body electric guitar. Way to go, Gibson! Unfortunately, because of World War II and little to no access to patent solicitors in the small town he was from, Appleton didn't make it in time to patent his design. Everything changes when in 1950 something incredible happens. Fender releases the Esquire, the first mass-produced solid-body guitar. They looked nothing like the traditional guitar. Also, the Fender signature bolted on necks made the guitars cheaper to produce and easier to fix. It was literally a new way to build guitars. It only had one pickup, but in order to achieve a wider and better tone, a version with two single-coil pickups was made and renamed Broadcaster. For just a short while though, Gretsch had a series of banjos and drum kits called exactly like that. So to avoid a lawsuit on many already produced Fender broadcasters, the only label that appears is Fender, since the model's name had to be scraped off. These rare models are known now as the No-Casters. The rebirth of the model though didn't take long. It became what we all know and love, the Fender Telecaster. Gibson at this point thought, hmm, maybe we should actually consider this solid body guitar thing though after all. So they finally designed the famous Gibson Les Paul, which actually didn't really have any input from Les Paul himself, besides his endorsement and permission to use his name as a PR stunt. The design resembles an awful lot Appleton's app, which remember he didn't patent in time. I wish I could travel back in time and encourage him. I don't know whether it was to apologize or to rub it in his face, but Gibson wrote a letter to Appleton in 1952 when they released the Les Paul. So that's what he says. Well, App, you see, our competition has finally forced us to come out with your solid guitar. Sure. Wish we had listened to you back in 1943. They also added a Les Paul brochure to the letter. Needless to say, the poor guy threw the whole thing out. A year later, Gretsch produced the Gretsch 6128 Duo Jet, very similar to the Les Paul, but with some air pockets that make it a semi-solid body. It will then become very famous when George Harrison will buy it as his first decent guitar, as he says, and use it in his early Beatles days. And as if the music industry couldn't be any more successful, the most famous guitar in the world makes his first appearance, the Fender Stratocaster. That's the guitar you think of when you hear the term electric guitar. It was and might still be the best and most versatile electric guitar on the market. And back when it was released, it was stylish, futuristic, and it had new amazing features. It was the first guitar with three pickups with switches and controls to customize the sound and the new efficient spring tension based tremolo bridge. It was also way more comfortable to play because of its double cutaways and round top edges. 
When this track came out in 1954, most rock and roll musicians, such as Chuck Berry, were still using semi-hollow guitars, and it took a couple of years before it exploded. In fact, one of the first people to make the Fender Stratocaster famous is our dear old Buddy Holly, that used it in many live and television performances, contributing to the growth in popularity of this guitar. Since Fender and Gibson during these years kept chasing each other to see who could do it better, Gibson, a year after the Strat, released a new and improved Les Paul with a new pickup system that will cancel the humming interference sound of single-coiled pickups, the humbucker, or double-coil pickup. The two coils have opposing winding and polarities that cancel electromagnetic hum. They're still used today in guitars, basses, and even in microphones. As a matter of fact, I have two humbucker pickups on my Epiphone Swingster, and this type of pickup not only cancels the electromagnetic noise, but makes the guitar sound deeper, fatter, smoother. On the other hand, single-coiled pickups are a bit noisier, which is not a bad thing, and create a crispier and brighter sound. There's no good one or bad one really, each player should choose depending on what they want to play and how they want to play it. In the following years, all the guitar companies mentioned before started producing new and functional models bringing design and sound engineering to their peak. Oh, and also, I couldn't believe it when I discovered it, but the Gibson Flying V, the guitar model that I've always associated with Jimi Hendrix or heavy metal artist, was manufactured in 1958. Even before the SG, the one that was made famous by Angus Young. During these years, not only guitars became more and more technological, but sound systems did. Experiments such as piercing the amplifier with pencils to create the iconic fuzzy and harsh sound in the Link Ray 1958 song Rumble earned him a complete ban from US radios. So really, to protect the poor amplifier's cones from being butchered by guitarists, effect pedals were introduced and were first made popular with the Maestro Fuzzbox used by Keith Richards in Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. The guitar PA industries are still working hard to bring to musicians the best performance experiences. But if you ask me, it was rock and roll that made it all possible. And keep listening, because in the future I will definitely talk about the history of bass guitars and drums. Don't worry, drummers and bass guitarists, I'm not forgetting you. I hope you liked this episode. Please let me know what your favorite guitar is. And don't forget to follow me on social media at The Cat's Whisker on TikTok and The Cat's Whisker Podcast on Instagram. I'll see you next week. Ciao!